Father God, we come to you this morning. First of all, thanking you for the grace of another uh, Lord's Day. Lord, we thank you first for all the men who work hard, who provide for their families, who are faithful fathers to their children. Those men who will stand and do whatever it takes to be provider, protectors for their wives and for their children. And Lord, for some people, this is a hard day. We ask you to remember those who are uh, don't have their fathers and their fathers on their minds this morning here in our congregation. In the time of uh, grief, as they remember uh, the memories of their fathers being with them. To look upon them, Lord, and to to comfort them, as we read this morning in Second Thessalonians. You loved us, Lord, and gave us eternal comfort. May you love them and give them eternal comfort and good hope through grace. May you comfort their hearts and establish them in every good word and work. Lord, may those who are grieving this morning look to you, the God of all hope, the God of all consolation, to console them in their time of grief. And Lord, we also pray this morning uh, for Delores and the pains that she's having with her uh, left leg in particular. Lord, that you uh, bless the doctors who will see her to provide her some type of relief if possible. And also, Lord, um, Brother Darrell and his legs also that you provide him some type of comfort and if he's able to go see uh, doctors Lord that they may help provide him comfort also Lord we, we, we think about the world in which we live we live in a world uh, where there's all types of suffering that takes place the suffering from grief the suffering from uh, medical uh, issues in our bodies the suffering of parents raising uh, children, the suffering of uh, wives being abandoned by their husbands, the sufferings of divorce and, and family uh, drama and family issues, the, the, the sufferings of children having parents who are uh, part of the criminal justice system. Lord, there's suffering everywhere in this world. There's suffering everywhere in our congregation among your people. Lord, some of the questions that may come to our mind is, is, Lord, why and, Lord, how? Lord, we ask the question this morning, Lord, to whom shall we look? To whom do we have hope? Lord, for believers, we have hope in the Lord. And this is not a pie-in-the-sky, wish-upon-a-star type of hope. This is a real hope, a real expectation of deliverance from our God. Lord, I thank you that we're not like the godless who don't have a God to go to. The gods that they look to are impotent. They can't help. As your word says, they have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have hands, but they cannot touch. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have feet, but they cannot walk. And those 
who worship them, those who make them will be like them. They will be impotent just like their gods are. But Lord, we don't serve that God. We serve the one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator God who, who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. We serve the transcendent God, the sovereign God over all of creation. And Lord, for those of us in here who are suffering, my encouragement is prayer and prayer is that they look to you. And that, Lord, even if you don't remove that suffering, that suffering is still ultimately for your glory. It is for us to always look to you as our sufficiency. Because, Lord, you would never leave us nor forsake us. You would never abandon us. You will always be with us, Lord. And I pray that you be with those in our congregation this morning who are suffering in different ways and that they may look to you. They don't, they don't try to bear it alone or grind it out. And Lord, also look to other saints to, uh, for encouragement and for prayer. Isolation is pride. Isolation is sin. It is sinful. It betrays the meaning of the church, the ecclesia, the, the gathered body of believers who belong to one another, who are all in Christ together. It betrays fellowship. It betrays the covenant relationship that we all have together as believers. So Lord, look upon us this morning, smile upon us. Make your face to shine upon us this morning. Lord, I pray also for our other brothers at our other congregations. They're dealing with different issues in their churches, Lord, that you may be with them. Bob and Carlton and Philip and Anthony and uh, Justin and Cody, our brother Curly. These other men, Lord, they're, they're dealing with issues in their congregation also. There's no perfect church congregation out there. But, Lord, we do serve a perfect God who tends to us. Lord, strengthen all these men, including myself, to continue to shepherd the flock of God, to continue to serve their congregations with all the strength that they have. Remember also Steve Mays and Gobbleger and Josephus over in Liberia and Brother Sylvester in Zimbabwe and my friend Josh Henderson down at Southside Baptist in Talladega. Lord, all these men, there are many more that are, are not named. Help them all, Lord, to continue to shepherd their flocks well. And those men who are fathers among them, Lord, that they continue to be good fathers and good stewards of fatherhood to their sons and their daughters. And Lord, help us all this morning as we prepare to hear your word, send your spirit, Lord, to illuminate the text that we will hear this morning as we speak about being what it means to be, be one in Christ, that Christ is our peace, that Christ is the one who causes us to have harmonious friendship with God and with one another in the church. He is the one who broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He removed the hostility. And he caused us to dwell together in unity. 
Lord, help us to see the importance in this, the reconciliation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear me with your spirit to preach this text well, Lord, and may you be pleased. In Christ's name I pray, amen. May let us turn to Ephesians 2. We're in our second message in this section right here. We're talking about being uh, Jesus being our peace. Last week we looked at being brought near by the blood. And today we're going to continue in this section of Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 18. And it's speaking about the peace that we have in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. In this context, Paul is writing about the Jew-Gentile uh, division that took place. In our context, it can be uh, what, what they, they say is racial, I would rather use the word uh, ethnic uh, divisions that take place in the body of Christ because that is the primary uh, concern here. It is not what happens in the culture, it is what happens in the body of Christ that is uh, first and foremost importance to us. So it says here in Ephesians, uh, I'm going to begin at the 11th verse and just read this section again in context. And he says, therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For, remember for means because, is given the causality of what was just read. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law, of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When you read that, you see Christ is the great builder. He is the great uniter of the church, of the saints together. I want to begin by saying that uh, apart from Christ, you are 
farther from God than you feared. A person who's apart from Christ is farther from God than they feared, than they actually know. But in Christ, you are nearer to God than you hoped. So that's the first thing that we must know is that those who are without Christ, they're farther from God than they realize. There's no such thing as a person being close to God who is not in God. There's, there's no such thing. They're, they're, they're so far away from God that they don't even know it. They don't even realize it. But those of us in Christ, we're closer to God than we actually hoped. We're much closer to God than we realize. But as I say all of the time, we may not feel that way, but of course, it's not about feelings, right? Feelings are not of the at the arbiter of truth. Scripture is our arbiter. So I want to begin with that and also by saying that um, in our nation, in our culture, in, in particular here in America, we have what people call racial divisions. I use the word racial. racial racism is not even a biblical word, a biblical category. Uh, but just for the sake of what we're talking about this morning, we're, we're going to use that language, although it's, it's, it's worldly and cultural language. You know, in, in our nation, we have so-called racial division between primarily between blacks and whites. Uh, we, we've done enough teaching on this in biblical worldview, uh, how we're not to look at culture through the lens that the world does, but we look at it through the lens of scripture. But there are tons of books, hundreds of books written on racial reconciliation and how can the races be reconciled and primarily the, the, this problem has filtered into some parts of the church where it should not be and where it, do, where it does not belong you have church conferences about racial reconciliation you have churches getting together to have joint worship services to you know bring forth uh, racial reconciliation so to speak all those things are thoroughly uh, unbiblical because those are just external ways of reconciling. And in those cases, true reconciliation hardly ever uh, takes place because that does not work. It's more virtue signaling than anything. We have so much division and strife in our nation. This, this uh, has been stoked through social media posts and, all, and, and the like. And the church giving in to uh, echoing the language of the culture, echoing the language of secular leftists who want nothing more than division because that's what they're all about. Nothing that we encounter in our day compares to the division that took place in the first century between Jews and Gentiles. And as I introduce this uh, message this morning, I want us to understand the true enmity that took place between Jews and Gentiles. It is something that we can never fathom because this was a cultural division, but it was also a religious division. As I said last week, the Jewish nation started with Abraham, the patriarch. You know, God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans and established the covenant with him. And out of Abraham's seed came the Jewish nation, the Hebrews. And as we read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see the formation of this nation. You know, God delivered them 
out from Egyptian bondage as it is chronicled in Exodus the 12th chapter brought them out into the wilderness and he established them as his covenant people and in the book of Deuteronomy God told them I think in Deuteronomy 7 that he chose them as his special people not because uh, of them because they were a small nation among all the other nations but God chose them because he set his love upon them so he set his love upon the Hebrews to be his people exclusively all the other nations the pagans the Gentiles they did not have the blessings of the Israelites all those blessings that you read as we studied in Deuteronomy 28 and all the curses that were exclusive to them were for them only the Gentiles had nothing to do with it. In fact, God told Israel not to be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the pagans. Don't, don't let your sons marry their daughters. And don't let your daughters marry their sons. Don't practice what they practice because they were heathens. Don't worship at the Asherah pole. Don't sacrifice your baby to Moloch as they did. Don't practice what the pagans did. Those pagans, they were Gentiles. And so from that point forward... There was a stark division between Jews and Gentiles. Jews were the nation of promise. Salvation at that time was through that. So for centuries, the Jews had been different from the Gentiles in religion, in the way that they dressed, in their diet. Jews had different diets from the Gentiles. They had dietary restrictions. And their laws were different. I think if you remember, as we were studying through Deuteronomy, I, I kept stressing the reason why God gave Israel these laws is to distinguish them from the Gentiles, to distinguish what they practice as worshiping the one true God from the false gods and the religions of the pagans. So for centuries, this was the case. The first encounter positive encounter was when Peter was sent to the Gentiles in Acts the 10th chapter up until then the gospel did not go to the Gentiles all the way down through Old Testament history all the way up until the time of Christ Christ came to bring salvation to the Jews but providentially salvation was always God's plan for all of humanity but providentially Christ came to the Jews and the Jews did not receive him. We read that in John the first chapter last week where he came to his own, his own meaning, his Jewish brethren, but his own received him not. He came to bring salvation to them, but they rejected him. So what did he do? He took the gospel to the Gentiles and through the work of the apostles, as you see in the book of Acts and all the way throughout, they brought salvation to the Jews and, the, and I'm sorry, to the Gentiles and the Gentiles were first introduced in Acts the 10th chapter but up until that time the church had no problems because only Jews were being converted and only Jews were being saved but with the salvation of the Jews on the same I'm sorry the salvation of the Gentiles on the same terms as the Jews there became problems in the church problems began to develop and so in Acts 11, the Jewish Christians had reprimanded Peter for going to the Gentiles and eating with them. And why did Peter do this? Because God gave him a vision and he told them that nothing that I make is unclean. Don't call what, don't, don't call what I say clean as unclean. Peter 
reciting his vision and said he found that with the Lord there is no partiality that God is not a partial God that God doesn't show favoritism toward the Jews and not the Gentiles that's basically what he's saying because salvation was brought to the household of Cornelius and Cornelius was the first Gentile convert under the uh, ministry of the apostles and so in Acts 11 chapter the Jews reprimanded Peter for going to the Gentiles and eating with them and so what happened was in Acts 15 you had the first council of the church it was called the Jerusalem council and this is what took place what I'm doing is laying the groundwork for uh, this message this morning so in Acts 15 they had what they called the Jerusalem council because they had to address this problem because some Jews in the church had issue taken issue with the apostles going to the Gentiles so we turn to Acts 15 and I also addressed this back when we were going through Galatians when when Paul had confronted um Peter about his hypocrisy so Acts 15 and this is where the Judaizers came in this is the Jerusalem council and this happened around AD 48 or 49 and it was basically uh, a council to discuss the conditions of the Gentile membership into the church it says but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. This was the, this was the most important question of the church at that time. Because you had Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, just like the Jews. So this was a very important uh, question that had to be answered. Verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them who belong, I'm sorry, uh, them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, between Jew and Gentile, no distinction. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So that was the solution. That the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, would be saved by grace. 
But verse 12 says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, and this is James, the brother of Jesus, this is the same James who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. He was one of the church leaders at that time. James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. Isn't that something? And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So this was spoken before time. Just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild his ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So it was prophesied hundreds of years before this that the word of the gospel would go to the Gentiles. So with that as a backdrop, here in, in the book of Ephesians, obviously it was still a problem 20 or so years later after this council when Paul had written a letter to the Ephesian Christians. Obviously this was still an issue that some of the Jewish believers believed that there was still uh, that, that, that their fellow Gentiles uh, who came to Christ were not truly their brothers or sisters in Christ. And so Paul wanted to address this. In the Jerusalem Council, we saw that Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way by faith in Jesus Christ. And that did away with the enmity, the hostility between the two. So looking at this passage here in Ephesians, Paul lays it out. And this is what he says again as we're going to look, work through this uh, text. He says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. He uses he himself, that is uh, emphatic. He's using the pronoun and the antecedent in the same, you know, next to each other. That means it, it is adding great emphasis in the Greek. So it says he himself, Christ himself is our peace. So the first thing that Paul deals with is the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. That's what he's dealing with in verses 13 through 15 in our text. That Christ himself is our peace. Now what do we mean by peace? We see that word a lot. The term peace means to restore that which was broken. You're thinking about reconciliation. So you can say he himself is our reconciliation. Remember, Jesus was called uh, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the what? Prince of peace, the prince of reconciliation. You know, this peace that scripture is talking about is not the absence of conflict. We're in your house and it's all chaotic and you just say, I just need some peace. <laughs> 
It can be like that when children are little. Ain't that right, Melissa? <laughs> yes, I just want some peace and quiet. It's not talking about that kind of peace. Although that peace is ideal, right? Okay. When the scripture is speaking of peace in this context, it's speaking of reconciliation. Bringing two parties who are at odds together. Who is the hour? The hour are the Jews and Gentiles. So he himself is our peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 and 6. He is the one who brings that peace. He is the only one that we look to to bring in that peace. No one else can bring us that peace but the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have two types of, again, two types of reconciliation in this passage. The first one is between Jew and Gentile. Who brings them together? Christ. Who reconciles them? Christ. Christ does that. So it says, he himself is our peace. Who made us, remember, our and us are speaking of Jew and Gentile. Who made us both what? One. And broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I'll say this. When you come to Christ Jesus in salvation, you are not only brought into a body, but you are brought into a place where you stand before God on par with everybody else. You stand on par with every other believer when you're in Christ. I stand on par with one of my favorite preachers, John MacArthur. I stand on par with the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. I stand on par with Paul Washer. I stand on par with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. As a believer, you stand on par with every other believer. That's what it means to make something one. I stand with you and you stand with me on equal footing. There should never be a point of separation between believers on any basis at all. If there is, it's not biblical. If there's any point of separation between believers, we're talking about true believers, we're talking about true believers and false believers true prophets and false prophets. We're not talking about that type of division. Just as believers, there should be no type, no basis of separation for believers. I talked about the uh, so-called racial division earlier that is filtered into the church where, especially, and this happened after the uh, 2016 election when Donald Trump was uh, elected. And I saw this unfold in a lot of churches. Uh, some in our area where you had some so-called black Christians who separate themselves from white churches because most of them voted for Donald Trump. And that actually happened on a larger scale in bigger churches and bigger areas. But that even happened in our area over the election of a president. And yet, some black Christians, I can't fellowship with them because they voted for Donald Trump. That's unbiblical. 
That's sinful. That's partiality. We've even allowed, we talked about this, we've even allowed all the, the, the riots and all this stuff over police shootings and everything. People have allowed that to filter into the church, causing divisions among Christians over police shooting criminals resisting arrest. And people have allowed that to filter into the body of Christ. It should never be that way. You don't divide over stupid stuff like that, and it is stupid. It's not biblical. It, it's, it's of this world. It's of the world's philosophy. It's of the world's thinking. And believers should never. I always say when you see things, look through a biblical lens. Always filter everything you see, everything you hear through the lens of Scripture. Because if not, guess what? You're going to have some type of suspicion about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is what happens when you uh, take on the world's thinking. If I take on the world's thinking, I could be suspicious of white Christians. Which I don't like using that term because they're not white and I'm not black. But I will become suspicious of my brothers and sisters who have less melanin than I do. Or they'll become more suspicious of me because they're feeding all that garbage that the culture says you should divide over, that you should be upset at people about. But among the body of Christ, if you believe in Christ, it makes no difference who you are. It makes no difference how much melanin you have in your skin. Because we're going to be together throughout all eternity. That's what should drive our fellowship. That's what should drive our love for each other, not these external things that the world focuses on. The world has no eternity to hope for, although they're going to spend eternity somewhere that they don't want to hope for. But as far as our eternity with Christ, they don't have that hope. We do. That's why that should be our focus. So Paul tells us again, that Christ made us both one. That Christ broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And when it says in his flesh, he's speaking of his bodily death on the cross. It's Christ's death on the cross that broke down that wall. And what is the, excuse me, he says, he himself is our peace who uh, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That hostility is explained in the next sentence by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So the wall of hostility that was broken down was between who was to adhere to the law and who was not to adhere to the law. Now, Christ broke down the law of hostility by fulfilling the law. And I'm explaining this because uh, when it says Christ, in some translations it says he abolished the law. It doesn't mean that he did away with the law. But what it means is that Christ in the flesh, he fulfilled the law. He said in Matthew 5 that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Christ fulfilled the law by 
perfectly obeying the law. And because he perfectly obeyed the law, he became our righteousness. Because we could not fulfill the righteous demands of the law. Only Christ could. We could not fully obey the law. Only Christ could. So Christ obeyed the law. The law no longer held sway over the Jews or the Gentiles. Why? Because Christ came to fulfill it. In Christ, we're no longer under the law, but under grace. The righteousness of the law, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is still God's standard. The law is still God's standard for righteousness. But Christ fulfilled that standard to become our righteousness. So what does that mean? Because he is our righteousness, his righteousness is imputed to us. It is placed upon us. Spiritually, it is as if we've never sinned. That's justification. We are still going to sin. But because Christ is our righteousness, guess what? He pleased our righteousness before the Father because we are in him. And we thank God for that, the righteousness of Christ. We thank God that Christ fully obeyed the law and became our righteousness. And so he can plead our righteousness because he's clothed us with his righteousness. Though we sin, we're still righteous before God because of the righteousness of Christ. So that's the wall of hostility that was broken down. Now, it took the early church in the first centuries of the early church. It took the early church a long time to get accustomed to there's no difference. Because even in the first centuries of the church, there was still that hostility that was there. But it has since been gone. So Christ is our peace and he also made peace. So it says here in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he may create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So what did Christ do? Again, abolish the law. Not by doing away with it again, but by fulfilling it. He rendered it powerless by fulfilling it. And he removed the condemnation of the law from us. And the result of that is a what? New man. A new human race, in essence. And this is the great thing about biblical reconciliation. No type of reconciliation in human terms can make anything new. Because even our best efforts are still going to be tainted with sin. Even our best efforts at reconciliation are never going to be adequate enough. They're always going to fall short. But when Christ reconciles, what did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5 or 17? Any man who is in Christ is a what? New creature, new creation. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
God received us and we became reconciled to him. Paul pleaded in 2 Corinthians 5 and 20, be reconciled to God. That is the call to every unbeliever. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And if you be reconciled, guess what? That brings you into a new body. A body of believers. And it doesn't make a difference whether you're Jew or Gentile. Whether you're black, white, Asian. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. And as Christians, we must think that way. We must live that reality. It does not matter. The color of your skin makes no difference. Your socioeconomic status makes no difference. It makes no difference at all. When you're in Christ, when you're in the body of Christ, you are a new creation. You are made new. You're made one new man. And because of that, that's where the peace comes. And that's what Paul here is saying to these believers. These, these are Ephesians, these Jews, and these Greeks. Greeks and Gentiles, same thing. Some old, older translations say Greeks. So he says that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two. Therefore, making peace. Now, the new man also is speaking of the human race under the second Adam. Because Christ is the first, I mean, I'm sorry, Adam is the first Adam and Christ is the second Adam. And in the second Adam, we're all recreated, so to speak. Because the first Adam, sin was brought into the world. Paul talks about this extensively in Romans, the fifth chapter. Christ is the second Adam. He came to do what the first Adam did not do. And so because we're in Christ, because of the second Adam, we are a new human race under the second Adam. So this is all pointing to the work that Christ did when he abolished the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. The emphasis of this passage focuses on the glories of Jesus Christ. He didn't didn't only make peace by the cross, but to those who trust in him, he made them new men. The Jews developed a spiritual pride and God had to humble them of their pride because that spiritual pride that the Jews had led to hatred between Jews and Gentiles. But what did God kind of do? He came to break that wall down. God is the great reconciler. God is the great uniter of people. I'm going to tell you this. You will never have any type of reconciliation that people on this earth are aiming for until they come to Christ. Because when you come to Christ, you don't see people the same. You don't see them with the same lens. You don't see them with the same eyes. I'm not suspicious of a person because they're of their skin color. And I'm not more favorable to a person because of their skin color. Because you have a lot of people now who have what we call identity idolatry. They, they have their identity in their skin color. It's just as bad for a person who's a white supremacist 
as it is for a person who is a black supremacist. Both of them are, are sinful. One is not worse than the other. You know, in, in our you know in our nation, white supremacy, as Joe Biden said uh, erroneously, is the greatest threat to our democracy. No, it's not. You are for saying something like that. Because that's not true. Because what is that doing? That is making people suspicious. That is making people of other skin colors look at white people as white supremacists when you say something as divisive and as foolish as what he said. That's partiality. That's wrong. It's wrong for anybody to think that. I don't care who it is. Because in our nation, white people are the racist and other people aren't. But all of us are capable of that sin because it's the sin of partiality. And you have people who are partial to a skin color. Only shop at black businesses. Only shop at Asian businesses or whatever the case may be. It's all a sin. My wife will tell you, I don't care who owns the business. If, if the food is good, I'm eating it. They can walk out there with a Confederate flag on their t-shirt. I don't care. As long as your food is good, it don't bother me. That's me. I don't care. That doesn't matter. It's just a shirt. It's just a flag. It does not matter. It doesn't have agency. It can't do anything to you. But we become so infected by the secular culture, by secularism, which is a godless religion that it has crept into the church. And we begin to think like the world. And we show partiality on that basis. It's sinful. Christ came to destroy those walls of division. And those are artificial walls. They're not even real. The Jews and Gentiles had a real problem. Because it went back thousands of years. And it was religious in nature. Remember, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Biblically, we're Gentiles because we're not ethnic Jews. That's the biblical way of looking at it. But what does the world do? Breaks you into all types of categories. You got so many categories now. It's like it's, it's ridiculous. If you you know when you're checking the the race part on the application, it'll say non-Hispanic white or Hispanic. I guess I'm a non-Hispanic white. No, I'm none. I'm white. I'm non-Hispanic. Okay. And then it has all these other categories. Black, white, Asian, whatever. It's like seven, eight different categories. Then under that you got subcategories. We come up with all these different acronyms. BIPOC. Probably never heard of it unless you watch certain uh, television. You know, BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color. That's an actual category of people. That includes everybody except for white people. <laughs> Actually, it does include white people because white people have color in their skin, too. Think, think about how silly that is. A person of color. When all of us have color, you're not translucent, Mary. <laughs> Melissa, you're not, you're not translucent. You have color. I see skin when I see you. But the world does that. It creates division. Christ came to break that foolishness down. And as believers, we should definitely be the first ones. To not fall into those traps. To not use that language. 
because you know what it will sip it will seep into our hearts it'll get into our thinking and we will subconsciously have bias we'll subconsciously have it that's how infectious worldly thinking is and not thinking in biblical categories but Paul said Jesus tore that down that he may create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace as Christians it does not matter skin color doesn't matter age doesn't matter it matters whether we are in Christ or not that's all that matters people are you in Christ are you going to see the Lord when your number when your ticket is punched <laughs> are you going to be with Christ in heaven or are you going to be in hell forever where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth that's what matters Paul said in Galatians 3 and 28 there's neither Jew nor Greek there's neither bond nor free there's neither male nor female for you all are one in Christ Jesus that is the message of the church that should be the message of the church the true church that we are all one in Christ despite all of the distinctions that exist that we should not even be focusing on Christ did away with that so this is what Paul is saying to his audience and they understood it as I, as I said mostly because they dealt with this a lot in the first century church as they were coming out of the apostolic mission in the book of Acts and the church was forming and the church was growing but guess what we are thousands of years away from that and we're still dealing with this with the little petty, petty divisions that, that we have allowed the world to, to fill us with may the Lord forgive us for that we are one body people we are the body of Christ we are the church I'm just as much in the body of Christ as uh, my brother Sylvester who pastors in Zimbabwe that I met on Twitter a couple of years ago met through Twitter a couple of years ago when he planted his church uh, last year he had sent me and some other uh, pastors over here in the states uh, their statement of faith he emailed it to us to kind of look over and make sure everything uh, looked look good and, and uh, we were interacting with each other through email uh, looking at his statement of faith hey he's he, he's all the way over in Zimbabwe on the continent of Africa but yet we're still brothers in Christ y'all some of y'all probably here when Gobbler Jay and uh, Josephus came when they stayed uh, with us for for a few weeks those are our brothers and sisters in Christ all the way from Liberia they are believers just like we are it doesn't matter what continent they come from it doesn't matter their customs and tradition over there that are different from ours we're still one in Christ and that's how we as Christians are 
to look at these things. And that's what Paul was getting across to these believers. Amen. And our second principle, this is the enmity between sinners and God, which is verses 16 through 18. This is the one that's uh, most important. Verse 16 says, and might reconcile us both to God. So first, the reconciliation happens between Jew and Gentile. But it didn't stop there. Reconciling us to God. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him, it's talking about Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the ultimate reconciliation for both Jews and Gentiles is the free, unlimited access to the Father. We have the same mediator who is Christ. Christ is the one who did this. So not only did Gentiles need to be reconciled to the Jews, but both groups needed to be reconciled to God. That's why I said you can have all this kumbaya and all these conferences for racial reconciliation and all these things. Can everybody just get along and 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 and, and all? This? Yes, you can do all that. But if you're not reconciled to God, it doesn't matter. We're looking vertical. We're looking horizontal instead of vertical. Paul says, be reconciled to God. Second Corinthians 5 and 20. That's, it doesn't just happen with each other. It has to be to God. Because if all you're focusing on is skin color, I can't be reconciled to a secularist or an atheist. We can get along. But we cannot be one in Christ, which is what matters the most. We can get along. You know, I've, I've worked for uh, bosses and managers that were unbelievers. We got along just fine through common grace. But we're not one in Christ together. That's what matters the most. Unless they get saved, I won't see them in heaven. And they won't see me in hell. <laughs> so they were reconciled to each other. And now together they are reconciled to God. And again, this is the conclusion that uh, the Jerusalem Council came to that we read in, um, in Acts 15. Where Peter said that God put no difference between uh, us and them, between the Jews and the Gentiles purifying their hearts by faith but we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they that's uh, Acts 15 uh, verses 9 and 11 and Paul says this in Romans 3 I love this 22 and 23 for there is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and when Paul said all he's talking about Jew and Gentile alike
There are no righteous people. All have sinned. Jew and Gentile. That's what matters, people. Not who committed the so-called greatest sins in America in, in certain circles if, if you believe it white people are the greatest sinners ever because your forefathers owned slaves and you don't even know if all of them did and not every single black person during that time were slaves do you know there were blacks who were not slaves in the 17 and 1800s? Did you actually know that? Did you know there were blacks who owned slaves? Did you know that there were white people who had other white slaves? Are they going to get reparations? But see, when you believe the narrative of the world, they'll say, oh, all white people are bad because you know, that's why they're taking down statues of, of, of our former presidents, which is a disgrace. They're taking down their statues because they own slaves. They committed America's original sin is slavery. You know, those people are religious too. They have an original sin. In Christianity, or for all mankind, our original sin is the sin of Adam. But in the, the religion of secularism here in America, uh, America's greatest sin is slavery because they always go back to that as if 160 years later we're still in slavery they keep harking back to it as if things have not changed but we as Christians true Christians have to be better than that we are one body we belong to the same Christ. Paul said this in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. There's one God and Father of all who is above all and in all and through us all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that's one baptism for all of us. There's one God for all of us. There's not a black God or a white God or an Asian God or a Hispanic God, or a Puerto Rican God, or a French God. There's only one God, and that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ground that we have to base everything. When we do that, we'll see all believers as one. Paul said, no difference. All is sin and falling short of the glory. Everyone has. Everyone has. So he reconciled us both to God, verse 16, in one body through the cross. So it was done by the work of Christ on the cross. The cross is what did it. The cross is what did the work of breaking down that hostility between us and God. And Paul's going to explain that in, in the next verse. That cross. And the thing is, the Jewish leaders thought the cross to be a curse because Deuteronomy, I think it's 21, says, Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. When those Jewish leaders sought to crucify Christ, they thought 
that they were bringing a curse on Christ. But God used it as a means of redemption. He used it as a means, you know, Christ became the curse for us. And because of that cross, Christ defeated the enmity between Jews and Gentiles and also between man and God. The cross did that. It had the opposite effect. Instead of becoming a curse, it became a what? Blessing. It made it possible for us, as Paul says here, to come to God, to have access to him. Now, God wants to reconcile sinners to himself because he is a God of love. But God saw to it that sin needed to be judged. Sin had to be judged first. And where was sin judged? It was judged on the cross. God solved the problem of the judgment of sin by sending his son to the cross to be the sacrifice for our sins, to die in our place. And that met the demands of his righteousness by doing that, satisfying the righteous requirement of the law by sacrificing his son. And what happened because of that? He killed the hostility. And then what did Christ do in verse 17? He came and preached peace to the whole world, those who were far and those who were near. That means those, the Gentiles and, and the Jews. He came to preach peace to both of them. Peace who? With God. That's what Christ came to preach. That peace and reconciliation with God. Not some type of kumbaya world peace. <laughs> That's not the kind of peace he's talking about. He's talking about the peace that man needed and that is peace with God. And then he says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you all know this is the Trinity in one verse? You probably didn't pick up on it until just now. You can say, I was today years old when I learned that uh, Deuteronomy 2, I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians 2 and 18 is the, is the Trinity in one verse. Okay, so let's look at it. For through him, who is the him? Christ. We both have access in one what? Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. To who? The Father, God, the Father. So you have God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit in one verse. And some preachers say, look at God. This is the work of the Trinity. The work of the Trinity is involved in us having access to God. Now, when it says we both have access, that, that, that is the present active tense, which is, in that sense, we continue to have access. And what it has the idea of is Christ bringing us actively into the presence of God and giving us a personal introduction. That's what Christ does. He presents us to the Father. That is the work of Christ. That is his mediatorship work that's his work as our advocate Christ is bringing us to 
the Father. That's what he does. Why do we have continued access to the Father? Because Christ gave us the access by doing what? Tearing down a wall of hostility between us and God. Those who are not in Christ, they have a barrier in place. They're condemned. Their prayers are not heard. We have open access to God as believers through Christ. When you're up at 4.30 in the morning or 3.30 in the morning and can't sleep, you have access to Christ. Yeah, you have access to TikTok and Facebook. <laughs> but you also have a greater access. Lord, help me to go back to sleep. Sometimes that's my prayer. Lord, I don't want to be up at 3.30. I got to go to work and I know I'm going to be nodding off at my desk. We have access. And we know, how, we know how it is. You have burdens on your heart at those times of the morning, right? You begin to think about things. How many of us honestly take advantage of the access that we have? You can be laying there. You don't have to be formal and get on your knees. You can lay down and, and pray to God while you're there uh, not sleeping. And, and let, don't let that bright light of the phone uh, hit your face. And you could just take advantage of what? The access that you have with God through Christ. It's free. It was paid for by the work of Christ. So because he's our peace, he's our reconciliation. We have free access to God. He made peace and he preached peace and he made it possible. We're at peace with each other in Christ. And we're at peace with God through Christ. That reconciliation has been done by Christ. And I wrote this note down here. That I want to read as we close. Our cultural differences may distinguish us. But they do not define us. And should not divide God's people. Or allow us to accept the social structures and idols that wrongly divide people. Because you know what divides us? Idolatry. Skin color idolatry. Political idolatry. Those things are what we in the church have allowed to divide us. We, we're different. As Christians, we don't allow these differences. They may distinguish us, but they do not determine, they do not define us. In Christ, while we have great diversity, we ought to live in even greater unity because of how we do life is more important than how, I'm sorry, the way we do life is far less important than how Jesus has reconciled us to God and one another. is more important in how Jesus reconciled us to God and to one another. That's what we should focus on. 
And I encourage each of us to pray and contend for the unity that we have and that is found in Jesus Christ. I think at our church, by God's grace, we've done a good job with that. But we don't want to take it for granted. But I think by God's grace, we've done a good job with it. There's some churches that don't. But as long as I've been pastor here, as far as I, I know, unless it's something secretive that I don't know about, we have been very blessed to not have those issues to come to raise their head in our congregation. And I praise the Lord for that. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is our peace. We thank you that we have access to him by the Spirit. Lord, I pray for our church and for other churches that that wall of hostility that the world has put up that we don't allow it to come into the body of Christ. It does not belong in the body of Christ. It belongs in the world. Let the world clamor over skin color. Let the world clamor over uh, ethnicity and divisions and political parties and all these things. Lord, let the world have that. That belongs to them. That does not belong to us in the body. Help us, Lord, to see that. And also, Lord, those who are outside of Christ, as I said earlier, they are farther away from you than they realize. Lord, as they hear the gospel message preached, may they come to you and be saved. Hear the gospel. And Lord, you grant them the faith to believe and that they may believe Christ. Save them from their misery, the misery and consequences of sin, the condemnation of sin, rather. Save them, Father. Save them. And Lord, encourage the faithful to always look to you. Encourage us, Lord, to take advantage of the access that we have to you as our Heavenly Father by the Spirit through the mediation of Christ. In whose name I pray, amen.